You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Okay, so as we get started this morning, I need you to do me a favor. Could everyone just turn for a minute and look at the large stained glass window here above the doors? I told you guys that this series would include pictures, and there's one right there. Right there at our building, we come in under this thing uh, every every time we gather, and I want you to notice, if you can glance up there, right in the center of that circle, there's two Greek letters, uh, Greek letters, uh, chi and rho, and they're uh, formed together. It's called a Christogram. It's one of the earliest symbols for Jesus Christ, and on both sides of the chi rho, there is the Greek letters alpha and omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, and then if you notice around, like a clock, Around the circle, there are different aspects of creation and life in this world. And the message of that window is that Jesus is the center of it all. That's, that's what the window means to communicate. Jesus is the King of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. And knowing his supremacy over this world is the key to living in this world. And so when we come here for worship, every time we enter this space, we enter under that truth, literally. And then every time we are commissioned out of this space, we, we exit under that truth, the truth of the supremacy of Jesus over all things that is conveyed through, through a visual, through this thing that we look at. And in that way, uh, that stained glass window and the book of Revelation share something in common. Because both, both this window here and the book of Revelation are meant to give us a visual perspective into the reign and relevance of Jesus for our lives right now. That window is an artistic vista into such reality. And the book of Revelation is a God-inspired vision of such reality. And that's the reason that we're in this book here in January, the year of our Lord, 2021. I cannot imagine a better place for us to be here at the start of a new year, having come through what we came through last year. More than ever, we need clarity on reality. We need to be reminded of the real truth behind the veneer of our common experience. Like what you experience right now, I don't know if you do this like I do, but like right now, if you can try to get your fingers on, on, on your consciousness, like what you experience right now in this world, in this room, the the normal plane of reality that we often live on. What's behind that? Like, what if we could just what if we could just see things as they actually are? Like, what can can we get to the bottom of everything? Just get behind it. The book of Revelation means to do that. This book means to show us how things really are. So let me explain. What, what is, first, what is the book of Revelation? Well, this book is a vision from Jesus given to the Apostle John to be written and sent to seven churches in Asia, what is modern-day Turkey. 
And these are seven real historical local churches, as Pastor Joshua mentioned last week. And if you can, if you could see these churches on a map, they, they form a kind of horseshoe in the order that the churches are addressed. So John is writing the letter from the island of Patmos. And then east of him, first you have Ephesus. And then up from Ephesus is Smyrna. So Ephesus is here. Then there's Smyrna. And then Pergamum. And then over, over a little bit is Thyatira, and then down to Sardis, and then to Philadelphia, and then finally the loop ends at the church at Laodicea. And so this book was meant to be circulated, literally, on that horseshoe, was meant to be circulated along the loop of where these churches were located. It was to be sent to all these churches, and then beyond these churches, this book was to be sent to all churches of every age, including our church today. That's why it's in the Bible. So just like we are supposed to learn from Paul's letter to the churches, we are supposed to learn from what John says to the seven churches. And I say learn, but really I should say see, because this book again is visual. John wants to show us what really is, not obscure it. Okay, this can be a hard book for us, but it's not meant to obscure things. The book of Revelation is meant to reveal. It's the book of Revelation. And so imagine, John, imagine that he has his he gets his fingers on the corner of of our everyday existence. Okay, this is the, the surface that we live on. He gets his fingers on the corner of our everyday existence. And what he does is he peels back the part that we usually see in order to show us this the, the unfiltered spiritual realm that we otherwise would miss. And the way that he shows us that is he, he engages our imagination. He, he, gets, he gets visual to engage our imaginations to help us see what without we could not see. And so for this sermon, what I want us to do, I want us to, to see three things. I think last night my family did the, uh, the, the state fair uh, glow. We went and saw the lights. And when you show up, they give you these glasses that you put on that's supposed to amplify the experience. Well, it's kind of like that's what's happening here in Revelation. We have these special glasses that we put on that we're supposed to see this book with. And so put the glasses on now. Engaging our imaginations are three things that we're going to do in this sermon. First, we're going to see why Jesus is addressing these seven churches. Second, so that's over here, why Jesus is addressing these seven churches. Secondly, what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. And then thirdly, how should we live in light of what Jesus says? So first, why, then what, and then how? All right, let's pray and get started. Father in heaven, thank you for the Holy Scriptures and thank you for this moment as we gather to hear from you. We want to hear from you. So please speak to us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so why does Jesus address these churches? There are three reasons why, and each of these reasons are things that we're supposed to hold in view as we continue to read this book. We don't, we don't glance at these things and move on, but we keep them front and center as we read about the churches in chapters 2 and 3, and then as we read 
everything else in this book. Here's the first reason. The first reason why Jesus addresses these churches is because one, Jesus rules a world conquering kingdom in tribulation. We see this right away in how Jesus is introduced in chapter 1, verse 5. In John's greeting to the seven churches, he describes Jesus as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. That means that Jesus first is the definitive revelation of who God is. He has faithfully represented the heart of God. Just like John tells us in his gospel, John 14, 9, Jesus says there that whoever has seen him has seen the Father. Jesus as the firstborn from the dead means that Jesus has defeated death and he has blazed the trail for a new way of life that overcomes death. This is the life that we follow Jesus into as his disciples. Then Jesus, as the ruler of the kings on earth, that means exactly what it says. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who holds the hearts of all earthly kings in his hand, and he has his own kingdom. Verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. So the kingdom of Jesus is one that he himself has has created. How has he created it? By conquering our sin. We were held captive to sin. We were enslaved to sin. We were stuck in darkness, but Jesus has freed us by his blood. He stepped into this world to war against sin, to to destroy the works of the devil by giving himself in our place to free us and make us a kingdom. And we are a kingdom of priests. And at this point, when we see that phrase, kingdom of priests, the Old Testament illusion radar is flashing here, okay? Because that phrase, that language, goes all the way back to Exodus 19. You guys remember Exodus 19, the book of Exodus? Yahweh's purpose for Israel was to have for himself a people. And we see here in the last book of the Bible that God's plan to have for himself a people was not given up on. Instead, he has accomplished that plan through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all glory forever and ever, but not just glory, also dominion. Jesus deserves all dominion. He has all dominion in verse 6. So Jesus, the, the ruler of the kings on earth who has a kingdom, has eternal dominion, which is what we saw this past summer in Psalm 21. In Psalm 21, we saw that God makes the Messiah the universal eternal king. That's so much the message of the book of Psalms. And so Revelation is is really bringing the entire Bible together. Jesus is the focal point. He's the center, just like in the window up there. And under Jesus as the center is a kingdom that will never end. His kingdom that will conquer. But his conquering kingdom may not be what you think. Notice what John says in verse 9. This is what you would call like his occasion for the book. He's explaining why he's writing this book. He says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner 
in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is in exile. He has been exiled to the island of Patmos on account of because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, which means he's writing this book. He's writing these letters to the seven churches from within persecution. In verse 9, he identifies himself to these churches as their brother and their partner in the tribulation. And right away, we should feel attention here because up to this point, the message so far has been victory. God's purpose has been accomplished to have for himself a people. Jesus has a conquering kingdom. But in verse 9, John puts that kingdom in the context of tribulation. Look at verse 9. We've got to see verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. John, he, he doesn't forget about the kingdom. He's part of the kingdom. He's a brother and partner to these churches in the kingdom. But right now, it is tribulation and kingdom. That's where we are on the timeline. Jesus has a conquering kingdom, and we whom Jesus loves and have set, who have been set free, we are part of that kingdom. But that kingdom for now is a kingdom in tribulation because we know Christians suffer. We experience loss and pain and heartache we live in a world of trials tribulation and so what john is doing here he's he's getting straight to the point and i hope you hear the clarity in this it's kingdom in tribulation a kingdom in tribulation is where we all sit right now that's where you are right now Right now, you are sitting in a kingdom in tribulation. And this is why we need the patient endurance that is in Jesus, which he also mentions here in verse 9. Verse 9, it's the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That line, that sentence pretty much sums up what we're doing in this world. And that patient endurance that is in Jesus, that is how the kingdom conquers through tribulation. We stand our ground by faith. We hold on and believe. And Jesus has something to say to us because Jesus has a conquering kingdom in tribulation. Here's the second reason. The second reason why Jesus addresses these churches is because, number two, Jesus has fear-conquering authority. And for this part, we get the idea here by the end of chapter 1, verse 8. John starts this book by grounding reality in the supremacy of Jesus. But then beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, John shows us what the sovereign Jesus looks like. This is a visual here. John is giving us an image. When we read these words, we are meant to see Jesus with the eyes of our minds. Okay? We use our imagination. Verse 10, it's a Sunday morning. John hears behind him a voice like a trumpet 
And it's the voice of Jesus. Jesus is commissioning John to write to the seven churches. And so John, he turns to see Jesus speaking to him. And and this is what he saw. You ready? Imaginations. Here it is. This is what he saw. I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Does everybody see that? Can you see him? We all get scared sometimes, right? Fear, uncertainty. These these things are part of this world of tribulation that that we live in. Sometimes things go badly for us. And the problem is from where we stand right now, we don't know if our next steps are going to go badly. We don't know if the decisions that we are making today will lead to pain or loss or heartache, which can be what makes the beginning of a new year fearful. Terrifying because we stand here and we look out into the rest of 21 and we just do not know. That's scary. Scary to me. But then there's Jesus. And there's this vision of Jesus in his sovereign authority and of all the fears that we have or could have about the future, Jesus who is described here in these verses is more real than those fears. His authority is more real than our circumstances and we should take comfort in that with our imaginations. See, it's one thing for us to be fearful and for us to think, but Jesus is in control. You should think that because that's true. But it's one thing to do that. And it's another thing to see him, to imagine him, to envision him the way that John describes him here because I'm afraid I have fears you have fears but the Jesus who stands by us like in 2 Timothy 4.17 the Jesus who stands by us has eyes 
like a flame of fire. And his hair is white like wool. And his feet are like bronze. And his voice is like a hurricane. And he holds stars in his hands. And he has a highly dangerous sword that protrudes from his mouth. What? His face shines like the sun. That Jesus standing by me, face shining like the sun, says, Jonathan, don't fear. He says, Melissa, don't fear. He says, David, don't fear. Megan, don't fear. Ben, don't fear. Terry, don't, don't fear. I am the first and the last. He says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Don't fear. Don't fear. He has fear-conquering authority. Cities, church, don't forget it. See him. See him. He has something to say to us because he has fear-conquering authority. Third thing to say, why is Jesus addressing these churches? Number three, Jesus cares about these churches. It's too much. It's too much. This is probably the most practical point of all, right? This is probably... The thing that, that makes the most sense as for why we have these letters. We know here, we see here, Jesus rules a world-conquering kingdom. We see here that Jesus possesses fear-conquering authority. But most practically, the reason that he has something to say to these churches is because he cares about them. He cares about these churches. Remember that Jesus now, this Jesus that we see in all of his glory and power and might, he is also the Jesus who says, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His eyes are a flame of fire. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. matters to Jesus what happens in the local church. He takes an interest. He, he leans in with his eyes that are like a flame of fire. He, he watches and he tracks and he keeps up with what's going on. And he has thoughts about local churches, which means... Jesus knows all about City's Church. He sees City's Church. He knows everything about City's Church. And he has thoughts about us. And we don't know exactly what they are. But we do have these letters 
these seven letters, these seven prophetic messages to the churches that are in Asia. And what Jesus says to these churches is relevant for our church. We infer that the things Jesus says to these churches could be things that he says to us, and therefore we read these letters that way. That's like an introduction to the letters. That's the why is Jesus addressing these seven churches. Now, here's part two, right in the middle. What does he say to the church at Ephesus? We're going to focus on Ephesus this morning, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. But there's a pattern that we see here that follows in each of these churches. And I could show you a chart. I'm going to spare you the chart. But every column basically gets filled. It's the same pattern we see over and over. Number one, the specific, the specific church is addressed. Number two, there's a description of Jesus. Number three, Jesus commends the church. Four, Jesus rebukes the church. Five, Jesus gives a solution in response to the rebuke. Six, Jesus gives a kind of high stakes warning. And then seven, Jesus makes a promise for those who conquer. Those, those seven things we see repeated in each of these churches. This is how it goes for Ephesus, okay? Verses 1 to 7, chapter 2. First, Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus. He's talking to Ephesus. This is the Ephesus that we know from elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul spent a lot of time there, we see, in the book of Acts. Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. We have the book of Ephesians. This is also where Timothy was stationed when Paul wrote First and Second Timothy. And then later, tradition says that Ephesus is where the Apostle John served. And so we know about Ephesus. He's writing, uh, John is writing here to Ephesus. Second, Jesus describes himself in verse one. He says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is another description of Jesus's supremacy. Chapter one, verse 20. We see just before this chapter, Jesus explains to us that the seven char, the, the seven, the seven uh, stars are the seven angels of each church, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So to hold the stars in his right hand and then to walk among the lampstands shows us that Jesus is sovereignly present. See, he's not just in control, but he's in control and he's close. He's near. Third, Jesus commends the church at Ephesus. And, and overall, the commendation for Ephesus has to do with their doctrinal alertness. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. This church was intolerant of evil. They are testing and discerning about false teaching. In verse 6, Jesus says that this church shares his hatred for the works of the Nicolaitans. And we, we have some evidence as to what these false teachers were about, but the Greek word here for Nicolaitan literally means people conqueror. And so whatever the details were of these false teachers, Jesus hated them. And it's good that we hate what Jesus hates, just like the church of Ephesus did. There's a, there's a greediness here that I appreciate. 
They, they patiently endure. They, they bear up for Jesus' glory. They are strong in faith. They do not grow weary. Personally, when I read this, I'm like, heck yeah, Ephesus. Let's go. I want our church to be like that. This is good. Jesus commends Ephesus for this. Jesus commends the doctrinal alertness of this church. And then fourth, there's also a rebuke. But I have this against you, verse 4, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, what does that mean? The love you had at first. Is John talking about love for one another? Is he talking about love for him? For Jesus? What? What, what is Jesus talking about here? What kind of love does he mean? Well, I think the best explanation is that this loss of love is love for Jesus expressed in the church's lack of witness for Jesus to the outside world. This church is really good. The church at Ephesus was really good at doctrinal purity and at keeping their own house in order. The letters to Timothy were effective. That's what they're about. They were successful. But the church at Ephesus has forgotten their calling to be a light in the world around them. There's a a loss of love for Jesus in witnessing for him to the outside world. We hear an echo here of what Jesus warned about in Matthew 24 when he talked about the end times. He says there that the love of many, Matthew 24, he says that the love of many will grow cold. And then he exhorts us to endure. And then he says in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So Jesus in Matthew 24 puts endurance and witness in contrast to the loss of love. And that's the same connection we see here in Revelation 2. This is also most likely why we see this image of a lampstand. The church is meant to be a city on a hill. The church is a light to the world. So yes, we must embrace sound doctrine, but we embrace sound doctrine for the purpose of making Jesus known out there. The church at Ephesus had abandoned the love they had at first by neglecting that witness. That's the rebuke. Then fifth, the solution is to repent. Verse five, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. What hope? The solution is simply to stop and change. And the reason that Jesus gives that solution is because it's possible. The church at Ephesus could do that. We could do that. We can do that. We must do that. Because sixth, it is very, very high stakes here that we turn like Jesus says. Because if we don't, if we don't repent, if the church at Ephesus does not repent, Jesus says he's going to remove the lampstand. Because what's the point of a lamp if you hide it under a bushel, right? What's the point of a lamp 
if the lamp doesn't shine. And so Jesus says, if you keep hiding the lamp, I'll be done with the lamp. If you keep hiding your lamp, Ephesus, the lamp will be no more. And we read that and we're like, hello. <laughs> Whoa. That's a serious warning from Jesus. And it's a reminder to the church at Ephesus and to every local church that there has ever been. This is a reminder to Ephesus and to every church that's ever been that Jesus doesn't actually need you, us. He loves us. He cares for us. But he is not desperate for us. Just like he is not desperate for anything, his eyes are like a flame of fire. So hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus has something to say. And the last thing to say, the seventh thing, is this promise, this promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Yes, that tree of life is the one from Genesis. Yes, that paradise is the renewed Eden of a new creation where we will be with God. And yes, the one who conquers is you. It's you, church. It's you who endure in faith through tribulation. Jesus gives you this promise. You will be with him forever. That is what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. We've seen why Jesus addresses these churches We've seen what Jesus says to Ephesus. Now, finally, how shall we live in the light of this? In light of what Jesus says, number three, how do we live? How do we live in light of what Jesus says? And these are just, what I'm going to do now, I'm going to give you three straightforward, good old-fashioned points of application, okay? They take just a minute. I'm going to run through them. I'm not going to expand each one, but each of these are an extension of what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, and I'm going to make them relevant and practical. I'm, I want to speak to City's church, okay? So we're taking what Jesus says to Ephesus, and now I'm going to address you, City's church, in this, the year of our Lord, 2021, okay? Number one, point of application, how do we live in light of this? Live like Jesus is worth our bearing up in hard seasons. We know what a hard season is, right? You, let me see your hand just so we all know what a hard season is. We've been there. We get that, okay? Patient endurance, bearing up, not growing weary, whatever gear of life that is required in the midst of hardship, our need to go hard when it gets hard, that is for the sake of the name of Jesus. And therefore, we should do it. A friend of mine recently shared this quote with me. Even when the cost is supreme, even when the cost is supreme, the joy is triumphant because the cause of Christ cannot fail. Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. No matter what, he's worth it. Whatever the cost, Jesus is worth it. And so we should live like he is. Number two, point of application, refuse to choose between deepening our theological understanding and telling somebody about Jesus. Jesus commends the church at Ephesus because of their doctrinal alertness. The rebuke 
had to do with their loss of love for Jesus in witnessing. And we can assume that there's some connection between the two, that churches who are serious about sound doctrine tend to be churches who are poor in evangelism because there's so much focus on the health of the church inside that they forget about what's going on on the outside. And so when we think that way, we create this dichotomy between doctrine and witness, between knowledge and affections. And if we keep running with that dichotomy, we will think that we have to choose between the two. Like, are we going to be a church about sound doctrine or are we going to be a church about making Jesus known? I say yes. We say yes to that. We refuse to choose between the two. We do both. Study your Bible and share the gospel with your coworker. Read that theology book in your life group and tell your unbelieving neighbor what Jesus has done in your life. The solution for the church at Ephesus was not to stop being so doctrinal in order to let their light shine. That's not what he says. Jesus simply says, let your light shine. Stop not letting it shine. Both of these things must happen together. So let's do that this year in 21. This year, we are going to learn and grow together as a church in becoming more like Jesus. And let's commit to telling people about Jesus. Third and final thing. Let us continually humble ourselves before the realness of Jesus. Now, I said earlier that Jesus knows all about City's Church. He does. He sees and knows everything about us, and he has thoughts about us. And although we don't know precisely what those thoughts are, the very fact that we know Jesus knows us, that he cares about us, that he sees us, that he has thoughts. The, the very fact that we know Jesus has thoughts about us should humble us like nothing else can. Do you think Jesus knows if we're missing something at City's Church? You think he knows if we're trying our best? You think he knows if our best is good enough? Do you think Jesus knows if we're tired? Do you think Jesus knows if we have any fears as a church? Does he know? Does he know if we're going to make it? He knows. He knows. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that, that Jesus has these thoughts of us, that he is who what do we do? We fall at his feet as though dead. humbled. We are humbled. We are humbled before this Jesus, but then he puts his hand on us. 
puts his hand on us. And they're nail-scarred hands because he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And that's what brings us to the table because this table, which is another visual, is where we remember the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. And together, as we remember his broken body and shed blood, as we, as we remember the death of Jesus for us, we remember his love. And look, it's not past love. It's not just historical event love, but it's present active love to him who loves us. Chapter 1, verse 5. Present active love right now. And so we eat and drink together as a church to give him thanks for that love. We do it first as a covenant members of City's Church. But if you're here with us this morning and you trust in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, if you know that Jesus loves you and has given himself for you, we invite you to eat and drink with us. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.